Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations with artists, I invite you to come visit David's Werner Gallery exhibitions in person. We're located in New York, Los Angeles, London, Paris, and Hong Kong. New exhibitions open each month. Plan your visit at davidswerner.com. Good afternoon. Hello. My name is Will Butler. I am a person who plays in a band called Arcade Fire and also does other music and things like that. And I live down in old Brooklyn, halfway to Coney Island. I'm Marcel Dezama. I'm an artist. And I, I also live near Will. <laughs> <laughs> From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about creativity and ideas. I listen to a lot of news, and then that just finds its way into the drawings. And then I almost feel it as, a, as an exorcism to get it out of me so I can go to sleep. <laughs> I'm Lucas Werner, editorial director of David's Werner Books. In every episode on the podcast, we'll introduce you to a surprising pairing. We're taking the artists we work with at the gallery and putting them in conversation with some of the world's most extraordinary makers and thinkers. Today's pairing, the artist Marcel Zama and the musician Will Butler. Marcel was born and raised in Winnipeg, Canada, and he's best known for his fantastical pen and ink drawings. From bears to soldiers and talking trees, his figures inhabit a surreal universe entirely of his own invention. Marcel also makes art films, theater and dance sets, dioramas, and album cover art for acts like Beck and They Might Be Giants. His work has been exhibited at MoMA, the Whitney, and the Kunsthalle Mannheim in Germany, among many others. Marcel also loves collaborating with artists in other genres, and you can see his production design and costumes in Amy Sedaris's TV show. He's collaborated in a few different ways with our other guest today, Will Butler of Arcade Fire. Will grew up outside Houston, and his path took him to a New England boarding school and the Midwest for college, before landing him in Montreal, where he joined his brother's band, Arcade Fire. After several albums, movie scores, and some solo work, Will keeps exploring new paths. In 2016, he put touring on hold for a year while he completed a master's degree at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. We're so lucky to have them here today to speak about the intersection of music, visual arts, politics, and beyond. Marcel and Will, welcome to Dialogues. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks a lot. How did you guys first meet? I mean, it was kind of your idea, Marcel, to set this up when we were talking. Uh, I was curious. Oh, I see. <laughs> uh, let's see. Probably through Spike Jones, I imagine. I'm sure we just met at like a like show at a, or something. I think it was right. at Where the Wild Things Are opening. Oh. I, I think, if memory serves me Yeah, right. I think that's actually yeah. right. We met at the premiere yes, for Where the, the Wild Things yes. Are, the Lincoln <laughs> the New York, Center. The New York premiere. Will, when did you get into music? Did you grow up playing instruments? Is your family musical? How did those interests come about? My great-grandfather was a man named King Driggs, William King Driggs, who was the uh, last son of the second wife of a polygamist homesteader in Utah in the late 19th century. And he always wanted to be a musician. He went to Chicago and got six months of music school, but his wife was pregnant and went home. And he was very disappointed. And then he had this big brood of children and he made them all play instruments and none of them wanted to. But like for Christmas, he'd be like, I got you all instruments. And he'd be like, cool. <laughs> and then he would make them be like, it was kind of a pre-vaudeville. <laughs> they drove around the Old West playing shows at churches and getting literally like getting run out of town with pitchforks. <laughs> wow. And uh, like he would get arrested. They were at a show and these men showed up and took away all their instruments because they hadn't 
it was like on layaway and they hadn't made any payments. And then my grandma was writing about it. And she said, oh, and after the men took our instruments, that's when we learned how to sing harmony. <laughs> of course, daddy was in jail that night. So uh, 10-year-old uh, Carlton had to drive the car through the desert. That was before they had roads, of course. <laughs> so, so it was that. And then my they were like a family band. And then they had a variety show on TV in the 60s called the King Family Show. And uh, that's what my mom oh, wow. grew up doing. And like playing shows in casinos in Lake Tahoe and then but a variety show just meaning that it was sort of like an all, all sorts of things would happen on the show I mean different yeah it was like comedy and skits and dancing and top 20 and but it was my mom and 40 of her cousins and her six aunts and uncles and oh and and so that's the context in which you grew up basically it's sort of I mean you weren't on the variety show but you were directly you were variety adjacent yeah it was variety adjacent <laughs> Being in a band was not a negative. It was normal. So I, when I was a sophomore in college in Chicago, I took off a semester to go up to Montreal to play an arcade fire with my brother. And my parents weren't like, that's crazy. I cast you out of the family. They were like, okay, great. Just make sure that you graduate from college. <laughs> but your brother also went to uni- finished university because you then went back to school after, mm-hmm. after playing for, I guess, a semester or... Yeah, I went, so my sophomore year, I went for six months to Montreal, and we kind of started recording Funeral. And then Funeral came out in uh, fall of 2004, which was the fall of my senior year of college. And at that point, I knew my professors and was doing independent studies and stuff. So I'd be like, can I skip school on Tuesday to go play on Conan? And they'd be like, yes, you can go play on Conan. (laughs) (laughs) And Marcel, maybe you would talk a little bit about your background, I mean, what your parents did and, and how you came to what you are uh, doing. Well, my my parents were uh, kind of, I guess, working class. <laughs> so uh, my dad was a baker. He worked at, I think Safeway still exists in Canada and the U.S. a little bit. So he worked at Safeway. And my mom was a part-time nurse. And my dad was a biker before um, <laughs> uh, he was married and everything. So he he had some interesting uh, rebel stories, I guess. And so maybe that's where the creativity came from, <laughs> that said. Like a ga- like in a biker? He had his own little gang, but they were fighting with this other... A yeah, biker collective. collective. A, a biker, biker collective. collective. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's why I like collaboration so much. <laughs> Not a gang, a collective. Yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. But they were fighting with this other gang, the Los Bravos. Another collective. Yeah, <laughs> another collective. Wait, they were called the what? The the what? Los Bravos in, in Winnipeg. I don't know if they exist anymore. I think they took over the Winnipeg scene. But uh, yeah, they, they'd stolen my dad's motorcycle. And so my dad went down to the clubhouse and he had taken his father's, I guess, a shotgun and like sawed it down and had it under his coat. And, and like, I'm taking my bike back. And there was just the mechanic that was working there. And he was like, okay. <laughs> so was, there was these weird kind of stories in my family. So kind of. He was obsessed with uh, Vikings and things like that. And so he he had made, like, battle axes and morning stars and things like this. So I'd seen, like, him working on weird things in the garage. And they were basically sculptures. Like, they were these, he'd be welding and melting metal down and stuff like this. But, uh, but functional. I mean, you could, yeah, all like functional. A, you yeah. could use the morning yeah. star. Yeah. Well, he, made, he used to make uh, weapons for me and my neighbors. <laughs> and we'd play knights and things like that. And then, of course, someone would... Come back hurt. or injured. <laughs> Usually the neighbors, thankfully. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but he, he also he also did paintings like uh, he, he had paint by number type things, and but he he wouldn't use the the chart, and so they'd be we had this giant 
the Last Supper over our, our kitchen table that was kind of interesting because he painted their faces all differently. Like, the, it doesn't mm. have the same look as Leonardo's. Like, they're kind of more... Uh, more Canadian. Uh, uh, yeah, more Canadian, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Outsider art f- feeling to it. And my, and my mom used to draw... I, I actually had a few of her drawing books, like How to Draw Horses and things like that. And I, I used to draw from those. And yeah, and main, mainly I kind of... I basically ran out of coloring books, and so I started drawing my own. And that's how that from... It was out of, I guess, out of poverty. <laughs> 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 and so I'd draw from these coloring books and recolor that image. And then about, eventually I just drew my own images and that based off of what was in there. And then I had dyslexia, or I have dyslexia. And so I, I wasn't very good at school. <laughs> so the one thing I was good at was art. So And I had teachers that were... They encouraged you. They encouraged me in that, like... They would take, I'd be drawing in class and they'd take them away. And there was one teacher that would kind of hang him up by his desk after, though. And it kind of was just a, a positive reinforcement in one direction. At least I batted everything else and knew I had to go in one. I guess that's good. It sort of clarifies the <laughs> yeah, path. Yeah, it was know? like, okay, here's my path. <laughs> it was kind of made for me. Will, when did you start experimenting with different instruments? I mean, early on or? Yeah, I mean, I'm not particularly good at any instrument. I guess I am now, 20 years later, however long. <laughs> you know, I took piano lessons as a kid, played clarinet in middle school. I never practiced, because I was naturally good, so I never quite practiced enough to be excellent, but I was naturally quite good. And I didn't listen to rock and roll or anything until well into my teens. I just listened to classical music and or nothing <laughs> for a long time. But yeah, kind of getting into... The Clash and punk music where it's just a bunch of idiots trying things out. I was like, oh, I'm an idiot and I can try <laughs> things out. That kind of freed me up in the kind of discovering punk. And then it was also the political views were kind of all in the same direction where I was, whereas the other music was just kind of, you know, the sexist, macho stuff. Yeah, It was kind of more political. And this is all like in high school. So I was kind of lost at that point. And then that kind of found like, mm-hmm. oh, these are my people. Kind of right. So... So I also started up a lot of bands back in those days, too. <laughs> oh, really? So, yeah. What were you playing? Uh, I was guitar and anything. <laughs> we had the ridiculous, we were the Boredoms. <laughs> and then later I found out there was a thing, a Japanese band called the Boredoms. <laughs> that one was very, like you know, Like a deadly straight. punk Japanese yeah. band, right? <laughs> you know, we're talking about, you know, uh, grade 10. So it's very stereotypical punk. So, Marcel, does the music come first when you guys have worked together, you and Will? Or is it something that emerges sort of over the process of the collaboration? I'm thinking really of that music video with the polka-dotted dancers. Like, how did that collaboration come about? I had done this uh, ballet movie called The Game of Chess. And so I had these costumes that were the pawns. There were these polka-dot costumes that I based off of a Bacabia drawing. That I, can't, I think he did it for a ballet in Stockholm. But yeah, but then Marcel had a show up at Zwerner. And it was coming down, and he was like, "Oh, oh, yeah, like, oh, we yeah. can do a video. <laughs> like, I've got a whole bank of TVs of these polka dotted dancers that oh, yeah. could be in yeah, the there film." Was this, but I made an art film called yeah. Death Disco. So when I was making this film, a game of chess, we actually wrapped early, and I had all these dancers, and the sun was going down, and all of a sudden it was that golden moment, and so I was like, "Ah, let's do a disco song really fast." And it, We'll just have like all hand clap and then you can dance to that. It was quite short. So when I was editing it, I just flipped it. Or no, I reversed the dance. So that part of it's like backwards. 
And so it has this real surreal feeling to it as well. And if you look into the background, you can see buses going backwards and forwards and <laughs> things like that. And so I had all these monitors set up, and so I had Will sing in front of it because it was also the day before the show was going to come down. So we had to, we kept everyone late at the gallery. Did we? Did yeah. we do nine to midnight? It was yeah, or it was, something, it was like, quite late. I, or midnight to three, or <laughs> we, had, we had like you know, we had a certain number of minutes in this Werner Gallery. But Alvin, your son, was filmed at the same time. He, you had to yeah. bring him in whenever those hours were midnight to three. <laughs> yeah. and just put him yeah. on the drum set. <laughs> Uh, the tears were real. Yeah. <laughs> the tears were real. That's right, because everyone's crying at the end, basically. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, he is crying at the yeah. end. Yeah. He's an amazing drummer, actually. <laughs> so Both of you have that, too. That's another shared thing. I mean, you've been now, you and Willem are, your son, are yeah. kind of making work. I mean, is that, yeah. it's sort of a weird question, but do you think about wanting that to be part of your relationship with your child, that that the, the creative process is something that you share? Yeah, I mean, that he, he really enjoys it and kind of, you could, See zeros in on certain things. Like he really loves doing sculpture, so I, we do a lot of collage and like uh, kind of weird installation pieces and things like that. We were kind of making scrap art, I guess, in my studio. I had like pieces of. Uh, I'm a bit of a hoarder, so so there's all these things, and we started breaking them and turning them into other. We made these bottle these bottle nights. We would take like old wine bottles or something and make take heads from puppets and then paint them or and then we started just making our own paper mache heads and plaster and so they got a little more <laughs> sophisticated <laughs> maybe you talk about some of the other collaborative work you've done i mean scoring mm-hmm. scoring her right i mean that was the band did but really you it felt like you were leading the charge on that what was that like yeah so our kid fired the soundtrack to her which is a spike jones film we were in it kind of from the ground up, we, you know, Wynn and Regine stayed at Spike's house and read a really early draft before it was, you know, in way in pre-production. And he would call us and say, oh, we're filming this kind of scene. Can you send some music that might go with this kind of scene? And then we would send him some stuff. And yeah, it was like a back and forth through the whole process. And I mean, I think, I forget how long they filmed for three months, but then edited for 10 or 12 or 15 months afterwards and kind of back and forth the whole time. And Kind of, I ended up directing the end of it. I mean, not direct, but but shepherding the arcade fire side of things because it was such a long process, and it's it's hard. It's hard collaborating and like getting in to the mind of someone else, particularly like when you're making music and then getting into the mind of Spike, who isn't a music maker; he's a filmmaker. So he would say that that's too sad, and he'd be like, "What do you mean by sad? <laughs> oh, you mean it has a piano in it?" <laughs> And piano means sad to you, which is great. But then when you're trying to work, it's it took me about nine months to really under to really understand what he was talking about, and then I understood what he was talking about. <laughs> See his uh, ukulele instead. Yeah. <laughs> and what about you? You've also worked with Spike before, right? I mean, yeah. Uh, I've, we've done drawings together actually. With um, oh, when uh, when he was working on Where the Wild Things Are, we'd go up to Connecticut and do drawings with Maurice Sendak, and uh, that was. Probably my favorite collaboration because it was like having nostalgia in the moment of like actually drawing with the with the hero that you know since 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 memory really. And what so, was that? What would happen? I mean, oh uh, well, <laughs> we would try to out dirty like make the <laughs> most dirty drawings we could possibly make. <laughs> and so there was this weird competition, and we we'd leave like with our faces hurting from the smiles on our faces because <laughs> we just we got. 
pretty raunchy, <laughs> these drugs. But you wouldn't expect it from, well, I guess in some ways you might expect it from Maurice, but. Um. <laughs> but it's funny, actually. It's, it's one of the things that people, I think unless they look at your work very carefully, they might not see that there is a lot of, to put it uh, in radio terms, erotic subject yeah. matter. You know? <laughs> um, but how did you, how has that made it made its way into your work? I mean, is that almost like you're just letting yeah, sort of like I, I, fantasies emerge or, yeah, or I dreams? Try, I, I try not to censor myself. So I just try to whatever, like a lot of the early work for sure was I, I would just have a blank piece of paper and start drawing. And I kept ridiculous hours. I was like, you know, I'd be drawing like from 12 at night till like uh, two, that maybe till noon or something like that. So the subject matter just flowed like, like in a dream sense. <laughs> yeah, and my my solo work has been much more in that spirit. Like Marcel is talking, it's like a little more free form. And when we made a great disco song together, it was like, hey, let's yeah. do this. <laughs> this is this is more moonshine than right. fancy scotch, yeah. but moonshine <laughs> is really great. Sometimes it has its place. <laughs> <laughs> in the last couple of conversations, a theme that's come up among artists how do you frankly how do you cope with kind of like the alone time in the studio can you talk about that a little i actually really like it at for i don't know maybe about a about two weeks or something and then at that point uh, i just need to socialize i also become very anti-social because of it there was a art group that we started in university that that was really helpful because then i could do solo work but i could be next to someone and talk to them. <laughs> and it was just kind of, and we were all antisocial, so it was this great way to, to get together. A lot of people sitting quietly and yeah. <laughs> we, we used to listen to comedy albums, and that was that, that, <laughs> that, that made up the conversation. <laughs> Will, I read recently that you went back to school, that you're getting a master's degree, I believe. I mean, that certainly sounds like looking for something, whether it's inspiration or energy or influence from elsewhere. What was the decision-making process like? Yeah, so I I went back to school last year. I graduated a year and a bit ago um, from the Harvard Kennedy School. It's the government school. They have a one-year mid-career master's in public administration, a public policy degree. This degree was a bit like a, an American studies degree almost in like not only to how do humans live individually, but how do we live in government and how do we live in the aggregate and how do you save lives and how are we ending lives and what are we doing? Though it's also tied up with caring about how people live their lives. And it was I started there in the fall of 2016. So I was there through the whole election. And then it's definitely important to learn where we are going wrong and how we got there. And uh, but but yeah, there, so so there's like both a very practical element of like there are people dying that don't actually need to die. And I mean, I have access and power and money in ways that not everyone has. And it's like, oh, I should probably learn how to make less people die if I can. Right. Because Arcade Fire has had philanthropic, I mean, a sort of philanthropic mission, if not explicit mission, at least an impetus for, it seems like from the beginning, basically. Yeah. Based from as soon as we could quit our day jobs. I mean, before that we were doing things always, but as soon as we could quit our day jobs, we were very explicitly like, we need to support people who are doing work. And for a long time, we've had a partnership with this group, Partners in Health, yeah, and, who do amazing work, who've yeah. been in Haiti for 35 years, and in Rwanda, and the Russian prison system, and in Lima, Peru, and Mexico, and the Navajo Nation. They're, they're very thorough, and they're very moral, and very effective. And that's been a real inspiration. Once again, more on the saving lives front, but also artistically. Like, there's an honest morality, and there's a, there's a real punk rock spirit 
Speaking of that punk rock spirit in the work, uh, I find your work has really become more political, Marcel. You've really built that in. The critiques seem really intense in your recent work. Is that something you want to do more of? Uh, is that even a change you're aware of? Well, I, I guess as an influence, I, I listen to a lot of news. So, um, and then that just finds its way into the drawings, and then because I almost feel it as a, as an exorcism to get it out of me, so I can go to sleep. Because <laughs> you know, hearing about kids being taken away and all this other uh, stuff that's going on, and then so yeah, I just need it as yeah, as like this exorcism. I feel like I just have to voice something. For a long time, I feel like your work has had a lot of women with knives and women with guns. Yeah. Well, it's always feminist. But, but, <laughs> but it, it reads very differently now. Like, it actually, there's an arc to it, whereas before there were, it had a different character, and now the same work. <laughs> it's right. like, yes, let's get all these women guns. It's like, there's like a, a read to it that is that's very natural, but that it, that I see in that history that, that kind of surprised me. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how uh, time changes what the meaning of an actual piece of artwork is. So there was an interview where you said, I think that you, I think it was after Sandy Hook, that you weren't going to yeah, draw yeah. guns anymore. Is yeah. that right? Yeah, Am I so, getting I, right? so I stopped for, till Trump got in. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, then I drew guns again. Because um, I, I did this, yeah, so I did this poster called uh, The Revolution Will Be Female, and then the proceeds it was for spousal abuse, so it was for uh, women to be able to get lawyers to pay uh, for their court cases, court cases and things like that. People, yeah, it's like a rig system for people of uh, white privilege, <laughs> <laughs> men in general. Mm. And so I just thought, well, I, I kind of I, maybe it was a little bit of inspiration from like the Black Panther movement and things like that. Mm. Just seeing seeing some show maybe at the New Museum or something like that. It was kind of, I mean, I'm still very anti-guns, but just just as a, a metaphor. <laughs> Anti-gun, pro-revolution. Yeah, yeah exactly. pro-revolution, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it's interesting because, you know, one thing I think about, or at least you hear when you talk to artists, is that bringing politics into the work can be complicated because, of course, one thing you do is you shut down interpretive possibilities. The moment there's a clear message in the actual work, you know, people feel like they're dealing with propaganda. And so one of the things that an artist has to navigate is this issue of how much can you bring in and how much do you actually have to position the work uh, yeah. as opposed to actually defining positions within the work? Well, I find with uh, Trump, it's it's basically surrealism. Like, it's <laughs> it's not... I feel like we're just living in this like this badly written B-movie. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. That's the... Yeah. So it's very easy for me to go in that realm because it's it, it doesn't make sense. So Right. Your work is yeah. already surreal. Yeah. So actually, it's, <laughs> it makes, it's totally right. Yeah. You know, how did you develop the style that you're known for? I mean, this sort of intricate drawing, often animal forms, sort of, again, surrealism, which we've talked about. How, how did that develop? Well, uh, I think it was probably growing up in Winnipeg. It was in the winters. It almost looks like a blank canvas where, like, the horizon and the the sky just, I don't know, and the like, land would just meet and disappear. Like, it was this white uh, background. And so, so I'd... I would just place characters in that, and and now a lot of the animals had some origin story based on just see, seeing them in nature, going to the garbage dump, and they'd be full of bears. <laughs> and then uh, actually, one of the, uh, the the bats I became obsessed with. Um, it was almost like a, the story out of Batman, where um, 
this friend and I were, uh, our school expanded quite large. And so they had to build all these trailers for other classrooms. And so they put this neshing underneath the trailers and me and my friend, we ripped it off and all these bats came flying out of the <laughs> bottom of it in the daytime. <laughs> it was like, oh, okay. I didn't know that what was going on there. And then that kind of, uh, since then, I was always quite obsessed with them. Cause I didn't even, I don't think I'd even seen a bat before that. And then all of a sudden there's just a lot of bats. <laughs> and uh, the style that I kind of, I always looked at children's uh, books as, because you could find them really, they were very affordable at like garage sales. And so I just buy these old kids' books. Anything that looked like it was pre-war or, or from like like the 40s or something. And I just always really connected that with that illustration style. I, I used to draw kind of, they were like zines, I guess more than a comic, but they were kind of comics. And uh, I used to trade them to this comic store for books. I couldn't afford anything, so I just make these comics because the the guy that ran it, he would just keep them. Later on, I found out that he just sold them all at a garage sale or something. <laughs> so was, but they were original. It was before I couldn't even afford to Xerox anything. So, <laughs> and then and then the the Winnipeg Art Gallery had a lot of Inuit art and Native American art, so that they had really simplistic style, and I really liked that. And a lot of it was um, these creatures that that would morph into humans. And so mm. I think a lot of that came from there. This was all like looking back later on. Anything coming up? I know you talked a little bit about your exhibition coming up, yeah, but what well, are you most excited about? That's uh, I'm talking with Justin Peck, uh, the New York City ballet choreographer, and we're maybe developing another ballet together. So that's been in the back of my mind a lot. Yeah, so it was a great collaboration the last time. So just seeing what he's able to do with, with these crazy costumes they come up with, and then you can make these dances based on them. <laughs> it's just um, that maybe that's the thing I'm most excited about. Oh, I guess also finishing this film uh, with Amy Sedaris and uh, working with Will on the soundtrack. So that's that's also very. I have a lot of exciting things going on. <laughs> Last time Marcel did a ballet, he he asked if I would do something for one of the parties, and we kind of started a band called Sister Squares with my wife and uh, and her sister and and this woman Sarah Dobbs who's also in my solo band um, kind of a girl group dressed all in polka dots <laughs> I like wrote an album with them like in a couple weeks and we performed it in the Lincoln Square <laughs> auditorium <laughs> and then the, the, that was pretty the, amazing and then Marcel named them Sister Squares after uh, yeah it was after uh, Marcel Duchamp uh, book uh, about an end game of chess like that comes up maybe once in a million times <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so I'd like to get to work to on Sister Squares, so yeah. well, that's and, another uh, project I'm excited about. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you guys can each give one tip or piece of advice that you would give to a young artist and really a young creative person in any field. I think it should be as open as possible. But what's something that you would tell them to do? My advice to every human is to never trust anyone, but in a positive <laughs> in a positive way to like know to like recognize if you're like putting your art in the hands of someone else. Just to be very conscious of that moment. And it's hard because you're an artist and you should just focus on making art. And it's hard when someone's like, I'm going to help you. Recognize when you're putting the art, your art in the hands of someone else, what that will do both to their, the art and to yourself. I, I find, uh, I guess for artists, just go with what you're kind of obsessed with at the moment because then it'll kind of come out in the art. People can see it somehow. It just kind of shows up if you're really passionate about it something uh i mean it, the, that's with anything really i think if you're just really passionate with that uh, you should just 
go for unless you're like a criminal, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> that, no, to all the criminals out there, do not follow your obsessions. Yeah. But if you're an artist, <laughs> follow your obsessions all the way. Marcel and Will, thank you so much for doing this today. Oh, this thank was you. a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks, Thanks. Thanks. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. You can find out more about the artists in this series by going to davidswerner.com slash dialogues. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review Dialogues on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Werner, and thanks so much for listening. I hope you'll join us next time. This podcast is a partnership between David Zwerner and Slate Studios.